Welcome back to DC EKG with Joe Grogan and myself, Eric Hewlett. We're part of the Big Wig Media Podcast and distributed by our partner, Evergreen. We're here with noted White House expert, Tevi Troy. Tevi, let's pick up where we left off, constructing a State of the Union. You let us know that everybody involved in constructing a State of the Union doesn't get Thanksgiving, doesn't get Christmas, usually doesn't get New Year's. Let's talk a little bit about how the process works in order to put the president in front of the public and Congress uh, on uh, in February. Yeah, look, the State of the Union is 30, to, uh, 30 minutes to an hour, but it takes hundreds of hours of staff work. And those hours start in late summer. Uh, Joe knows the OMB process really well. You get the pass back and each agency puts in its requests for what they want to spend, but also what are going to be their priorities for the new year. And then that goes into consultation with the relevant uh, councils, the policy councils, National Economic Council, Domestic Policy Council, et cetera. And so you have all these hours of staff conversation about what we want to highlight in the State of the Union. The speechwriters get involved in every single time. I guarantee you this happened in the Biden White House. It happens in every White House. They say, we're not going to make our State of the Union a laundry list. We want to make it a narrative, a free-flowing conversation, a really uh, a moving speech. That never, ever happens. It always ends up being a laundry list because every cabinet secretary wants their pet projects involved. And you have this cycle where it, people want to have an interesting State of the Union, but structurally it's just not set up to have that kind of speech. So that's why they go to the pageantry. And I know, I know we could talk about the pageantry and kind of the big moments, whether you're sure. highlighting Lenny Skutnik or something like that. Well, and right. So departure under President Reagan to begin to introduce that sort of element in 1982. But certainly with President Trump, the, the, the previous Republican administration, the idea of a laundry list was pretty affirmatively discarded and instead broad thematics built around personalities and stories up in the audience became the hallmark of his State of the Union presentations. Let's talk a little bit about that quick evolution from where we were, laundry lists, to something that is much less than that in this day and age. Right. So again, I expect that Biden's speech is going to be a laundry list. I don't expect him to um, have a, a great thematic narrative speech, although he probably will have these kinds of moments where he highlights somebody in the crowd. Usually, um, and, you know, given the Biden administration's proclivities, will be someone who you know, uh, fits their internet inter intersectional viewpoint of the world. So you do have that going on. But I think the pageantry emerged, and, and, the, and I think it really goes back to Ronald Reagan when he did highlight this guy, Lenny Skutnik, who uh, I guess jumped into the, the Potomac to Rose save, Potomac right, River to to, save, to save somebody in a victim Florida, Florida, right, Florida aircraft. That, that had right. hit the 14th Street Bridge. And, yes. I mean, it was, it, was, it was a terrible disaster. It was a freezing cold day in Washington. We don't even get days that cold anymore. I don't know. In, in the last 30 years, the, the temperature has considerably warmed here in Washington. And so Reagan has this moment where he highlights real-life American heroes people who did great things like Lenny Scutton jump, jumping in the water. And it just breaks up the speech. And Clinton was a master at this kind of thing. But you needed this because the speeches themselves are so boring and you really can't <laughs> soar on the great rhetoric that you hear in, let's say, inaugural addresses, for example. So they're just a different type of speech. And again, every speech starts internally with the speechwriter saying, we're not going to do a laundry list. And they all, almost all, end up as laundry lists. And it's important because you want to know what the president's program is for the year ahead. So it doesn't make an interesting speech, but it does give you a sense of where the administration wants to be. So as a historian, then, how do you evaluate the success of a State of the Union address? Budget's different, but State of the Union, where, again, you've either laundry listed, you've been incredibly thematic, you've really reached high points, depending on which president it is, but ultimately, 
most State of the Unions are forgotten. How is it that an administration really tries to drive or fail to drive what's in the State of the Union? Look, I think all of us have been in Washington a long time. We watched a lot of speeches. I think we can all better remember some of those pageantry moments, let's say, you know, putting the Medal of Freedom on Rush Limbaugh or the Lenny Skutnik moment, far more than any rhetorical flushes from flourishes from any state of the union. The only one that I can remember off the top of my head was Clinton's The Era of Big Government Was Over, Sorry. which you know, was basically a huge concession by him that the Democrats did not like. And you still see Democrats trying to, to walk that back today. And Successfully, I might add. <laughs> unfortunately, unfortunately. Republicans were elected in November, but yes. Right. So, uh, so for the most part, you don't have rhetorically successful states of the union. You just don't. So let's let's talk a little bit about, he, we expect pageantry, you know, it would be interesting if we each took bets on uh, uh, who might he put in the audience. I'm, I'm going to guess maybe a diabetic and he highlights the insulin uh, copay cap from the, from the, um, from the Inflation Reduction Act. But uh, I, he'll, to your point, he'll bring somebody in from the Democratic coalition, somebody the administration this White House is trying to reach out to. But he's got to talk to Republicans for the first time, controlling the House of Representatives. So uh, thin majority that Kevin McCarthy sits on top of this. Uh, you know, I think if you talk to people in D.C., it is a precarious position that Kevin McCarthy is, is in right now. A lot of hardliners um, are suspicious of him. And if he makes a mistake in this debt ceiling, negotiation, he may not be speaker come 2024. So how do you see the policy agenda, the legislative agenda playing out as Biden works through these last two years and eyes uh, a potential reelection campaign? Yeah, so I think that Biden has really checked a lot of his legislative boxes in terms of what he wanted to accomplish in the first two years, uh, with, with the exception, I think, of the uh, <laughs> national federal takeover of elections. But for the most part, he's checked the boxes in terms of what he wanted to accomplish. So I think the next two years are about framing the argument for why he should be reelected. And I think that's going to be the focus. And I think they recognize that if you look historically, you don't get a lot of stuff done in the third and fourth years of, of a first term because it's all focused on the election. Now, that said, I think what he's going to do is he's going to try and act in a way that he thinks is helpful to the Republicans, or at least shows him to be this bipartisan moderate who brings people together, because that's his self-perception. But I think in reality, you look at these first two years, and you had the Bull Connor comments, which really offended Republicans, the ultra-MAGA and the semi-fascist stuff that he, he comes up with. So he has these rhetorical flushes, flourishes that, again, are very offensive, I would say, to Republicans, and I think they run counter to his preferred narrative of someone who's trying to be a bipartisan moderate. And I think we might see that again, and he, again, may think he's being helpful by calling out the, the ultra-MAGA or the semi-fascist elements of the Republican Party within Kevin McCarthy's base, and that's actually not going to be helpful to McCarthy as he's trying to corral an, a narrow majority. So, and certainly would disagree strongly with how he's going to characterize elements of the Republican base, but let's talk, while the challenge for a president in trying to reach this rhetorical heights is pretty significant, there's also an even bigger challenge for whoever's responding to a State of the Union. Sarah Huckabee Sanders has that duty this year, the newly elected governor of Arkansas. Talk a little bit about how you counter uh, and stand up for a party out of power, out of the White House, and how successful these sort of counter speeches have been. Yeah, look, I think, again, this is something that's judged in the negative. 
if you don't screw up, if you don't have a disastrous response, I think that's the, the best you can hope. I remember uh, Marco Rubio had the water drinking incident, and was it Bobby Jindal who put on his extra heavy Southern accent in his response, and he got a lot of mockery for that. So for the most part, if you do a solid job and don't make a mistake, I think that's a win. Uh, it's a very hard thing. Everybody is expecting the president. Everybody waits in line to see the president. The whole House gallery is packed. And then you have this person kind of sheepishly get up there afterwards and give a response that, frankly, a very small fraction of the number of people that watch the first one are, are watching the this, this second one. So you really want to play it safe and, and not make major mistakes in this. You're not going to make your name as the next you know, Kennedy first inaugural type speaker with your response to the State of the Union. Well, one of the markers I'll be watching is the amount of applause once the president is over. I remember in 1980, Jimmy Carter came to give his, what became his final State of the Union, and Democrats are still in charge of the House and Senate, but they clocked in applause at two and a half minutes, which demonstrated, at least to the political reporters at the time, that the president had a bigger problem than even they were aware of in terms of the lack of support amongst his party in making sure that he would fight for it successfully for re-election. So, Tevi, uh, I think that's, that's really interesting that Biden's going to go out there and and attack the right wing of the Republican Party and make things more difficult as far as reaching compromise and driving a uh, consensus legislative um, package forward. You recently wrote about uh, reform of the Center for Disease Control. Now, the Democrats just rammed through the Inflation Reduction Act with 100% Democratic votes in the House. Not one Republican voted for it. Uh, there's not a lot of warm and fuzzy feelings up there on the Hill. But at least as far as Center for Disease Control, it does seem to me anyway, there is a lot of churn and discussion among people on the left and the right, Democrats and Republicans, that CDC has some real weaknesses and maybe it's time to discuss reform. You're watching these these various reform efforts. I contribute to, to contributed to one recently at the Center for Strategic and International Studies, and, and that's continuing to move forward. And you wrote a great column about it. Let's talk about this. Do you see any opportunity for bipartisanship? And what does Tevi Troy, who was Deputy Secretary at HHS, which is where CDC sits, and you were at the Domestic Policy Council, what, what do you think needs to be done there? Yeah, well, I'm, I'm glad you raised this. And look, the reason that there is bipartisan grumbling about the CDC is because they royally messed up in the recent coronavirus uh, disaster. And a million Americans died. And people ask me, oh, well, how do you think about the Trump administration versus the Biden administration in their response to the coronavirus? I, I don't really contrast the two administrations so much as I say it's a U.S. government failure. And the CDC likely would have made the same mistakes regardless of who was president. I mean, they are arrogant and convinced that they could do the testing. And that didn't matter whether Trump was president or Biden was president. And the other thing is that Rochelle Walensky, who's the head of CDC, she openly acknowledged that CDC failed to do the job in this recent incident. And so she opened up the question for the, this idea of reform. So I clearly think that there is appetite for reform. I think there's a lot of things that have to happen. I think number one is there is no authorization for CDC. It was created by executive action. Well, maybe authorize CDC with a specific mission right. that they need to be controlling pandemics. So Congress actually needs to write a bill to actually set a charge for the CDC. 
Yes, and then related to that is CDC spent so much of its time on behavioral health, right? which is telling you not to drink the big sodas or to exercise or all kinds of things they want to tell you to do to impose on your personal behavior. And, you know, medically, many of these things are correct. But that doesn't mean that they are the same as a communicable disease that can spread from person to person and potentially kill a million Americans or even more and have civilization-altering consequences. So I think CDC needs to focus on that name that it has, the Centers for Disease Control, and not spend about half of its budget on behavioral behavioral health issues, as it does now, and spend more money and more focus and more attention on these potential pandemic spreads. And if that were to happen, then I think they could just be more honest about what type of agency it is. Right now, they kind of pretend that they're this elite pandemic fighting unit, and when in reality, they're doing all this stuff on behavioral health when they actually get the money appropriated from Congress. I would add one thing to that. Well, one, I wanted to echo what you one, said. There's so much more. Right, <laughs> you could spend all day on it. I mean, one thing, frequently when you say they need to focus on disease control, which obviously is their title and why they were originally set up, people say, oh, but it's important that they focus on smoking all the stuff. The government needs to do that. Well, maybe, maybe not, but it shouldn't be CDC. And if you, you can sit there all day long and say, there are certain things that would be nice if the U.S. Marine Corps did them, but then at the end of the day, the Marine Corps is not going to be able to fight wars. So you got to figure out what is this agency in business for and keep them focused on that, um, on that specifically. The, the other thing, uh, you know, one of the suggestions that's come up a couple of times is to move them to Washington, D.C. They originally sent down there to Atlanta to not be involved in politics. But I think to your point about arrogance, they are an arrogant agency and they don't think they need to be responsive to policy. But when you're in a response, you're making policy decisions all the time. So they weren't they they they're not in the habit of informing Democrats or Republican political appointees what they're up to or why and being part of a policy process. I think that's a real uh, flaw. As somebody, um, you know, you worked on the pandemic, res um, the, the response and the preparation for pandemic response in the Bush administration. What, as somebody who did all that work, what were you maybe most surprised about that they failed at? I mean, you obviously thought when you, when you wrote those plans or participated in them, excuse me, that they might do a better job if something like coronavirus happened. What surprised you the most? I thought there would just be more attention and focus on this issue. Look, I, I, I don't put that much truck in this idea of moving them to Washington because I think they'd be equally arrogant if they were in D.C., Atlanta, or the moon. I just, I just think that's the way they, they view the policy process and the political world is beneath them, and they think they're above it all. So I'm not sure moving them to Washington, but breaking out those things, and maybe the CDC remains the behavioral health agency, and let it go to Congress and ask for money for behavioral health, and we create some separate agency that is just focused on pandemic fighting, or make CDC focus just on pandemic fighting and have the behavioral health done by the, the Marines or whoever else you want it to, done, to have it done. But having both missions makes it harder to convey messages that you need to to the American people, to all of the American people, when there is a problem. Because if you are the agency of basically healthcare scolds telling people, you know, don't eat that, don't drink that, then when the time comes and there's a disease that's out there that's killing people and you want to tell people to get your shot or stay away or wear a mask or don't wear a mask or whatever it is, if you are viewed through that prism of this is the agency that's bugging me all the time and nagging me and doesn't really think about my life or my challenges or whatever I'm facing, then it's just harder to convey that message. Right. And certainly there are many multiple notorious examples where courtesy of this attitude, 
they had to come back later and actually adjust their guidance, even though they already knew the facts, which adds further to distrust and an alienation um, and a lack of ability to really tune in and focus when CDC and its officials actually speak up. Yeah, and related to that, it colored their view of how to handle the coronavirus because they treated it as a behavioral health issue. And they're saying, you're a bad person if you're not wearing a mask. You're a bad person if you're not getting the vaccines on, on our timetable. And I say this as someone who's pro-vaccine and I you know, rolled up my sleeve and I got the, the shots. But the way they treated people who did not comply with their guidance was similar to the way they treat people who you know, drink the big Slurpee. And they have this condescending view and people don't like to be condescended to. And certainly it's amazing that for people who are supposed to be experts in behavior and how we react to various external stimuli to behave like that over and over and over again and then express surprise and incredulity that people are apprehensive or not paying attention to and definitely will not take their advice is really amazing. We'll be back with more with Tebby Troy after this next break. I'm Eric Hewlett, along with Joe Grogan for DCEKG, along with the Big Wig Media Podcast Network and our partner, Evergreen. <laughs> 